0: We return to Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13 this morning. Our text is actually 16 to 18. We'll read 13 to 23. And when they, the wise men, of course, were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, And take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there, until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he, Joseph, arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by, spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose, and took the young child and his mother, And came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Arclaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Father, this morning we are glad to return to this marvelous text of demonstration concerning Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. We take note of the fact that prophecy is not often fulfilled in the way we might suspect. One of the things that would cause us to be humble and careful about things yet future is the fact that the things that you say are for sure, and yet the way in which they come about are so seldom in the way in which even your people would suspect. And certainly the way that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic line is not in the way in which many, many might have suspected it would be fulfilled, and yet it was exactly fulfilled for no word of thine can fall to the ground. Help us then today as we study the text with a beautiful perspective, having known something of the ancient past and something of the currency of the New Testament fulfillment and then living in these days in which we once again live between those two advents when Christ came and he comes. We've just sung of the Lord's return, of the Lord's coming back. And we surely believe that to be true. But Lord, today, by the Spirit of God, who has been given to us as your people, we pray that we would understand the word of God concerning Christ, and that it would cause in us a sense of courage and joy in response. For We pray today in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. The story of compounded grief and loss is well known to the hometown folk in Waterloo, Iowa. Waterloo was the place where Sherry and I served the Lord previously, and almost everybody that I ever met in Waterloo knows the story. And the story is about Mrs. Sullivan. Her name was Alida Sullivan. She had her hands full with five Young boys, Joe, Frank, Al, Matt, and George. Five boys. That's a handful for any mother to be sure. As young men, Frank and George enlisted in the Navy. Uh, but their days of duty ended before the United States entered uh, World War II. They actually ended their service in forty one. But soon after uh, the U.S. declaration of war, all five Sullivan sons enlisted in the Navy and served together on the USS Juno. As a part of the Battle of Guadalcanal, all five Sullivan sons died in service to their country. There's hardly a person in Waterloo, Iowa, that doesn't know something of that story. But it is hard to imagine the compounded grief and sorrow of Alita Sullivan when notified of her family's loss and literally almost the totality of her family's loss. The loss of all five Sullivan's sons also confirmed and strengthened the policy of the Navy, which actually existed before that time period, not to allow siblings to serve on the same duty station. But that policy did nothing to quell the sorrow, the motherly sorrow and grief of Alita Sullivan. Today, we are working in Matthew chapter 2 with a motherly grief, as stated, in reference to the name Rachel. It is grief of a different sort, but along similar lines, of compounded sorrow. Having noted the broader section, 13 to 23, the three dreams, to Joseph, 13, 19, 22, those dreams directly directing godly Joseph and leading and protecting the earthly family of Messiah, we're continuing now to work with the three Old Testament prophecies said by Matthew to be fulfilled in the presentation of Jesus as the Christ or Jesus as uh, the Messiah. Uh, last week, we worked with Hosea 11.1 1, as it was referenced in 2.15. 2.15 references Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Today, we're working to connect the reference of Jeremiah 31, 15 at verse 17. Uh, Previously, we worked to grasp the significance of the prophecy fulfilled concerning the place of Bethlehem and then Egypt. Uh, Next week, we're going to be working with the prophetic significance of Nazareth. That comes at the end of the chapter. But today we're working with a prophetic reference to Ramah and the story of Old Testament Rachel, the second wife of Jacob. There is indeed in this text, 16 to 18, our text for this morning, a single word that has captured my attention. A single word concerning Herod's view of the wise men's departure without return to him. After finding the Christ, that invokes a truckload of Old Testament storyline in reminder. That word is mocked. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked, Herod believed that he had been mocked or tricked by the wise men after they did not return to him to tell him of the exact location of the born king of the Jews. Now you know that the wise men avoided Herod as warned by God. But Herod's hatred and hostility only increased after believing himself to be tricked. As a result, all male babies born in the region up to the age of two were slain by soldiers at Herod's command. Motherly grief in Bethlehem and its coast, or expanded region, suffered the killing of their innocent and precious sons. Bethlehem's mothers knew compounded sorrow in grief. In that particular case, it wasn't one mother with five sons, but it was multiple mothers and multiple sons that were taken out by means of Herod's wicked anger. But back to the word mocked for just a moment, or tricked, if you will. Herod had sought to trick the wise men, you recall, by telling them that he too wanted to come and worship the newborn Christ. Herod the trickster thought himself to be tricked by the men called wise as warned by God. And that invokes an interesting biblical thread line. The trickster and the tricks, The trickster and the tricked. The trickster and the tricked. The account before us tells of the safekeeping of approximately six-month-old Christ in the midst of the slaughter of innocents. Zero to two in Bethlehem and the broader region at the hands of hateful Herod. All of this is stated to be, in our text, in connection to Old Testament Rachel and the place called Ramah. Now, immediately, there's a problem with that. What's the problem? Well, Rachel, Genesis. Ramah, Jeremiah. Rachel, weeping in Ramah. Wow. Rachel, Genesis, period of the patriarch. Rema significant, in the period of exile, separated by hundreds upon hundreds of years. And yet, with reverence to Rachel, we have one of the most important trickster and tricked storylines in all of the Bible. Tricks and trickery remind me of the Old Testament man, Jacob whose very name means supplantor or trickster. In one of the greatest conversions ever recorded in Scripture, Jacob the trickster became a man of God and was renamed by God to be Israel. But the convoluted story of Jacob the trickster, a man of deceit, who became the last patriarch of God's promise, is indeed Old Testament reading of the compelling sort and very good background for the prophecy that is cited here in Matthew chapter 2. So very quickly and by somewhat of extended introduction, let me just remind you of Jacob the trickster. Jacob was a trickster who tricked his own father, Isaac, and brother, Esau, pretending to be Esau while before his poor-sighted father. Jacob the trickster was tricked later in life, and that's one of the things that is interesting about the way that God does things, that the trickster becomes tricked, It happens in Matthew 2 concerning Herod. It happened back in Genesis concerning Jacob. Jacob the trickster was tricked by his uncle Laban, who agreed to give Jacob the love of his life. Laban's daughter, Rachel, there she is. That's our connection back to Matthew 2. Laban's daughter, Rachel, was the love of the life of Jacob. But after seven years of hard labor and service rendered to Uncle Laban, uh, Jacob was given, instead of the wife of his desire, Rachel, he was given Rachel's older sister, Leah, in the nighttime consummation after seven years of servitude. You talk about being tricked. Wake up in the morning, and who is that in my bed? I'll wake you up, Leah. Most of you know that another seven years of dedicated service to old Uncle Laban secured Rachel for Jacob. But then the part you need to be reminded of is this: that beautiful daughter of Laban, Rachel. She turned out to be barren. And indeed, most of the names we associate with the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 tribes of Jacob who became Israel, most of the names actually were born of uh, the older, I guess, maybe a little more uglier sister, Leah. Rachel was barren for a long time. Leah bore most of the children of Israel. Now, this is a part of the background that you need to be reminded of in order to understand why Matthew cites Jeremiah concerning the place of Ramah and the woman named Rachel in the context of Herod's evil trickery and killing spree. Now, there's a lot there that I just said. And mentally, it might take you a moment to catch up with that. Let me just say that one more time. This is a part of the bra- background that you need to be reminded of in order to understand why Matthew cites Jeremiah concerning the place called Ramah and the woman named Rachel in the context of Herod's evil trickery and killing spree. I mean, the connections here in this second, or in this, uh, in this uh, 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 element of, of stated prophecy. Uh, verse 17, 18, Uh, this this connection here literally takes the whole of the Bible and brings it together right here in uh, verse 17, as it were. Three periods separated by hundreds of years brought together prophetically to help us in the study of Matthew conclude Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Genesis 35, Jeremiah 31, Matthew chapter 2. Those would be the beginning places of reference that we would work in in order to understand the sweep of time that is reflected in the reference of Jeremiah back in his day uh, to uh, Rachel and Ramah, and for Matthew then to say, that that somehow uniquely is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus the Christ. Wow. I want to begin with a precedent of sorrow and promise that is strangely mixed. Uh, Back in the Old Testament record concerning Jacob and Rachel. The precedent of sorrow and promise associated with the little town of Bethlehem and associated with its greater region. As I've already said to you, and we're not turning there this morning for the sake of time, but Genesis 35 records two very dramatic events. Genesis 35 records the return of Jacob to Bethel, and Jacob's name change, Jacob to Israel. Genesis 35 includes the phenomenal affirmation of God's promise flowing from Abraham to Isaac and, in Genesis 35, confirmed to be flowing to and through Jacob, now to be known as Israel. Genesis 35 recalls the restatement of the promise given by God to Abraham and Isaac Jacob's grandfather and father. That affirmation did not come to Jacob until he got his act together. Until his heart was right with the Lord. Until he was indeed a broken man with a limp that trusted in the Lord. Nonetheless, Genesis 35 presents us with a brand new Jacob. Genesis 35 is the chapter of Old Testament conversion when Jacob goes from Jacob to Israel, the man of promise. That is one of two major events of record in Genesis 35. Now, before I tell you about the second event of record in Genesis 35, let me just tell you first that before that moment in Genesis 35, as recorded uh, uh, the beloved, but barren Rachel, had cried out to her husband, Jacob, give me children or else I die. And I do believe that there was kind of a, a whininess in the pretty face of Rachel. And she said, Jacob, give me children, I'm going to die. Jacob. Give me children or I'm going to die. Jacob, give me children or I'm going to die. I mean, honestly, the drippings of a woman like that are enough to drive any man nuts. And I believe that Jacob was on the verge of nuts as Rachel cried out for children. So Rachel's personal sense of sorrow at first, at first, as a young woman, was all wrapped up in the fact that she had no children. She was consumed. She was obsessed with the fact that she was barren. And for years, that was her complaint. And for years, that was her her ongoing consideration and definition of view of herself. Uh, in regards to her marriage to Jacob. Then, in time, and in answer to prayer, God opened Rachel's womb. And in the big picture of life, God opened Rachel's womb twice. And both of those boys turned out to be something. But nonetheless, when God first opened Rachel's womb... Rachel gave birth to Joseph, the son of Jacob, who would become a family savior years later in Egypt. Joseph's multicolored coat of honor. You may understand the uniqueness of the family dynamic that was at work there, as all the other sons were descendants of Jacob and Leah, and then all of a sudden Rachel has a boy, and he's all it. He's dad's favorite. He gets to go to the mall and buy a robe. The rest of us are wearing these handy-down things. And the jealousies and the envies of the family are just palpable, as you read the Old Testament record. But nonetheless, Joseph, what a wonderful uh, guy of God in the totality of his life as it plays out in the remaining chapters of Genesis. But still in Genesis 35, the man of God's promise renewed becomes a man of sorrow Jacob, the man of promise, Genesis 35, Jacob to Israel, becomes, at chapter's end, a man of sorrow and acquainted with great grief. As the family of Jacob traveled from Bethel, as we read it in Genesis 35, Rachel was well pregnant with her second son. And the scripture records that when Rachel travailed or went into labor, that she had, quote, hard labor. And both the life of the baby and the mother were in jeopardy. The attending midwife sought to assure Rachel that her son would make it. But as Rachel began to die, she blurted out the name of the boy to be born in light of the big case of her life, of so often and so long remaining barren, and then having a little champ in Joseph, and now to be pregnant again and to be having another boy, she calls out his name, which in the Bible is declared to be Benoni. Rachel called her baby boy, number two, Benoni, which translates into the son of my sorrow. So right here in the chapter of God's reaffirmation of promise in Jacob, now named Israel, comes the account of Rachel's death in childbearing, and her naming of her baby boy from the perspective of that deathbed, the son of my sorrow. Hence, Genesis 35 brings together promise, God's promise, and human <laughs> sorrow. Genesis 35 is about the mingling of sorrow and The mingling of sorrow and promise. Jacob, in that moment of time, Genesis 35, hearing his wife declare the name of the boy to be Benoni, uh, acts uh, as uh, a godly dad might well act, and we would say wisely, and rather immediately, and he renames the boy for Joy. He takes the boy coming out of the womb of Rachel that is named at the first Benoni, the son of my sorrow. And Jacob, now Israel, gives the boy a new name. No, we're going to call him Ben. We're going to call him Benjamin which translates into the son of my right hand. And so in a baby born of Rachel in Genesis 35, in a baby born, are two unique thoughts brought to bear in a single child, one from the perspective of a dying mother and the other from the perspective of a godly dad, and the two thoughts brought together in the life of the boy are Son of my sorrow, son of the right hand. Now, I don't think you have to be a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar, or I don't think you have to be a long uh, uh, 90 years in the Lord to be able to sit back and say, Wow, what phenomenal hints God lays down in Scripture to make us think again and again and again and again and again of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The significant thing, in addition to those two great events in Genesis 35, concerning the mingling of sorrow and promise, is the fact that Rachel died in Bethlehem. The first biblical reference to Bethlehem is connected to the birth of Benjamin and the death of Rachel. For the man of God's promise, Jacob, Bethlehem was a place of mixed sorrow and love, mixed sorrow and promise. In some sense, both the names Benoni and Benjamin, meaning son of sorrow and son of the right hand, came together in a place called Bethlehem. And Matthew is going to say to us that all of that in some way foreshadows and speaks of Christ. Who is Christ? He is the man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He is the son of the father's right hand, born in Bethlehem. That's a phenomenal thing to begin to track in your mind concerning the first little idea of precedent there. All right, you've taken it a lot, so take a good deep breath because we're going to dive in again, second time now, and talk about the pain of sorrow and promise that is much later associated with the falling of Judah to the Babylonians. We're going to jump up out of Genesis 35, and we're going to fly, as it were, uh, through the rest of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and we're going to continue right on flying through the record of the historical books, and we're going to jump into the aspect of the beginning of the, of the prophetical books, and we're going to ultimately come to land in Jeremiah, old weeping Jeremiah. And we're going to consider now, in the second little element or facet of that which helps our understanding of the reference in Matthew 2, uh, we're going to think about for just a couple of moments the pain of sorrow and promise much later associated with the falling of Judah to the hands of the Babylonians. Much later, God's prophet Jeremiah witnessed the capture, exile, and mass killing of Jewish sons as sinful Judah fell. The whole book of Lamentations can be brought to bear in that regard. Jeremiah 31.15 speaks of the place Ramah. Ramah is interestingly only a few miles from Bethlehem. And in Jeremiah's day, Ramah was the place where the Babylonians had set up their deportation site to transport Jewish boys like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, to Babylon. Grieving mothers, losing sons to Babylon at Ramah. In Jeremiah's day, were described by Jeremiah the prophet back in his day as Rachel. She's long been dead. But Rachel weeping for her children. You see, Rachel had become for Jewish women over the generations a symbol of motherly sorrow. Thus you grasp with me the expression of pain felt by Jewish mothers losing their sons to the Babylonians. But Jeremiah also referenced that motherly pain and sorrow with the accompaniment of God's promise. If you want to read of Rachel weeping for her children in Ramah in the historical significance, you read Jeremiah 31, 15. That is going to introduce the idea of this compounded grief and sorrow in a given day. But then if you want to bring that together or mingle that with God's promise, then you have to pick up verse 16, and I printed it for you in your bulletin. So you have a reference to it. Jeremiah 31, 16 says, Thus saith the Lord, Refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. Daniel's mother, Hananiah's mother, Azariah's mother, Michelle's mother, we're told he'll be back. Historically, did they ever get back? No. Did God's promise fall to the ground? Daniel will still be showing up to the blessing of his mother in the coming day. You say, well, that's nuts. Well, it's no more nuts than you singing this morning, Jesus is coming again. Listen, we're the people of nuts. We're the people of weird. We're the people of strange doctrine. But true, true, Jesus is coming again. And every single promise of God is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ's Our Lord. So in Genesis 35, there's the patriarchal storyline mixing sorrow and promise. In Jeremiah 31, there's a historical record mixing sorrow and promise. And now in Matthew chapter 2, 16 to 18, there is the propagation of sorrow and promise mixed as Herod slays multiple baby boys in an attempt to eliminate the newborn Christ. And yet, while babies are slain, Jesus is safe. And why, in this moment, as recorded in Matthew 2, are there multiplied sorrows associated with the death of baby boys? And at the same time, the story of Jesus safety at the hands of his earthly father, Joseph, who is living in obedience to God. The unimaginable motherly sorrow in Bethlehem is mixed with the account of the Lord's safe keeping, thus the Jewish mother's who said goodbye to their sons at Ramah, is brought prophetically to bear upon the same region near Bethlehem, where we read of slain babies and safe Jesus. Matthew says, here is the fulfillment of Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. In what sense, Matthew? In what sense? Well, in the sense that in Genesis 35, God orchestrated all things so that at a given point in time, uh, the blessedness of promise uh, would come together right in conjunction with the reality of great family sorrow. And then hundreds of years later, the prophet Jeremiah would acknowledge great motherly sorrow in the name of Rachel, the symbol of, of motherly sorrow for the Jewish women, he would reference Rachel's sorrow over the loss of children in his day, right along with the promise of God of a better day. The mingling of sorrow and promise. Sorrow and promise mixed. And Matthew now is saying to us in Matthew chapter two sixteen to eighteen, that the ultimate sense of fulfillment of this mingling of sorrow and uh, promise come together concerning Jesus as the Christ. It's one of the reasons why I was so struck with the insightful lyrics to Isaac Watts' hymn, in which he wrote of Christ on the cross, sorrow and love flow mingled down. What is the ultimate bringing together of sorrow and love, sorrow and promise, sorrow and salvation? The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. In Christ, the sorrows of sin and death flow mingled down with the promise of God to save and to secure. The Christ on the cross. Worst day ever. And best day ever. Sorrow and salvation mingled there for your eternal benefit and mine. Little wonder the Heavenly Father's voice will break through in Matthew chapter 3 at the Lord's baptism saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The mingling of sorrow and promise in the mind of God, in the plan of God, in the word of God, by the word of God hanging at the cross. The sorrow of mothers and the safekeeping of Jesus uniquely helps us to tell the truth of the gospel of Christ. The days of sorrow and death continue because of sin. The day of salvation has been secured because of Jesus. And there was never a single moment in all the record of human history when sorrow and promise better came together than at the cross. We've read and studied in Hebrews that the Lord Jesus is indeed bringing many sons to glory. The children of sorrow can find salvation in one of the one of God's promise, Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, how I hope that your heart this morning is open to him and filled with a spirit of welcome and desire for the very same Jesus, of whom we read in Matthew chapter 2 as being Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. Father, what thrilling things we get to think about because we read your word, because we study your word, because we think along the lines in which the Bible presents you to us. We know and do believe the Bible to be a faithful disclosure of you, our God, for our consideration and embrace. We would praise you for the great things that you have done. Praise you for the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise you for the tugging of the Spirit of God upon our souls to honor him, to worship him, to believe upon him, to live for him, to speak of him all the days of our earthly sojourn. Help us then as a congregation to be responsive to the ever-living Lord Jesus Christ. May the things that we've seen in the scriptures this morning fuel the fires of our passion to be all in for the Lord Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to gather in a place with people that love you and indeed care about you, to worship together and to honor you for the great God that you are and the great thing that you have done for us in the saving of our sinful souls. No lack of sinful sorrow in the world this Sunday morning. By your grace and your goodness, no lack of opportunity to speak of rescue and deliverance and salvation in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus. Help us then in response, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.